This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined with Benjamin Wittes um, as one of the two authors of the new book, Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office. This was published in 2020 by Farrar, Strauss, and Guizot. Um, and sadly, Susan Hennessy will not be able to join us, but Ben said he would be able to speak to both of them, both of their contributions. Um, I'd like to welcome Benjamin Wittes to the New Books Network again and to ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he and Susan came to this project. Hi, Ben. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. So I am a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, as is Susan. And uh, we are together, the uh, respectively, the editor-in-chief and the executive editor of Lawfare, which is a website that covers national security legal issues. And uh, we came to this project uh, really by dint of uh, writing about in a kind of daily I guess not quite daily journalism, but basically daily journalism context about the presidential power exercises of the Trump administration, uh, which we started writing about actually before the election in 2016, when we were sitting around every day trying to imagine what a Trump presidency would look like. And between that exercise and then having to sort of cover it on a daily basis, uh, we started to develop ideas about the interaction between the presidency that Trump was proposing, proposing by doing, and the traditional presidency, which reflects, you know, our longstanding normative expectations as a society of the way the presidency should behave. And so the project was a project in exploring that dichotomy or that that divergence and and that discussion of the traditional presidency if we could just start there a little bit and i know the second the second chapter in the book is about the oath of office um which again is you know sort of embedded into the constitution um but if you can explain a little bit about the understanding of the traditional presidency particularly um as most americans see it as opposed to necessarily people who are always studying the presidency Right. So the, (coughs) excuse me, the traditional presidency is a little bit of an imprecise term, right? In the sense that the presidency is not a static institution and does change uh, both in a kind of gradual way and in sort of sudden uh, uh, disruptions at various points in time. That said, there are accumulated expectations that presidents will do X and not Y or will do A and not B, right? So we have, for example, some of these are very formal, for example, that the president will go up to Congress once a year and give a joint address before a joint session of Congress by way of fulfilling his or her responsibilities to give information about the State of the Union. We expect that presidents will give policy speeches but not hurl insults at people. 
By the way, in the 19th century, we expected that presidents wouldn't give policy speeches. So that's itself a change, right? Um, And, you know, there is a set of these, most of which we're kind of unaware of. They're just a a kind of background uh, understanding of what presidents do that's based mostly on the fact that that's historically what presidents have done. And so um, we, if our model is kind of that if you assemble the aggregation of those things, you can describe kind of what we expect of the presidency. And we call that the traditional presidency with an understanding that it's, it's a bit imprecise and it's somewhat, uh, and it's always somewhat in flux itself. And so I, I wanted to ask you particularly why the, the, you know, the chapter after the introduction is the oath of office, which you know, most of us sort of pay attention to that for every four years at a point in the inauguration when the president stands there with a hand on the Bible and takes the oath. And it's the oath that's in the Constitution. I have my students read it when we're talking about the presidency to see what it is that the president swears to do. So we're all clear on it. Um, But you sort of make, you and Susan make a, a sort of a big part of the argument that the oath is super important to understand in context also of the Trump administration. Right. Uh, So let's talk about this as a political science matter, and then let's also talk about it as a legal matter. Although this is one of those, I think, rare areas where the political scientists and the lawyers actually agree. And, and Susan and I actually disagree with both. Okay. Um, so, you know, a political scientist looks at the oath of office and says, it kind of doesn't matter. It's this ceremonial formality. There's no, you know, it, it, it's, you can't measure it, right? You can't, um, uh, it's some, it's this piece of theater that we go through, but it doesn't actually have any governing importance. And the lawyer looks at the oath of office and says, well, it's sitting there in the Constitution, so it's at some level law, and it does promise to do certain specific things, but it's unenforceable. And since the things it promises to do are super vague, it it kind of doesn't matter either, except in this f- sort of formalistic sense. And so there's almost no law about the oath of office. It You won't find a lot of law review articles about it. It's not an area in which it's not a provision of the Constitution that gets cited very much in court opinions, right? So the, the, the legal world and the sort of political science world kind of regard it as a sort of formal non-entity. And so this is not the way the founders understood the oath. The founders understood the oath as a central underpinning of the entire functioning of the document. And they attach sufficient importance to the presidential oath of office that, as you point out, they literally wrote the text of it into the Constitution. They actually scripted it. And the reason they cared about this so much, other than being the fact that they were generally an honor culture and an honor culture that took oaths very seriously uh, is that, you know, you have to have some way to 
make the people do what they are saying they're going to do or what the document demands that they do. So a president, you can't actually force a president to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. You can't make him be a wise or good commander in chief. You can't make him, uh, uh, you know, uh, only use the veto uh, when there are genuinely good public policy reasons to do it, not use or not use the pardon power to reward friends and punish enemies. All you can do is make him promise to do that in a kind of ceremonial way that puts his honor behind it. And, you know, for the most part, that works pretty well. If you look at the literature on how presidents regarded their oaths of office, most of them regarded it really seriously and felt kind of bound by it, bound to sort of some vision of the public interest, bound to uh, some sort of sense of trying to do their best. And the argument that we make about Trump is that there is actually something different there, that this is somebody who does not really even pretend to be public spirited in character. You know, he's somebody who, um, you know, when he swore that oath and large numbers of people saw him, they regarded it, and certainly speaking for myself, I regarded it as what does it mean for somebody with that little civic virtue to swear an oath about anything? And, um, and I think it's that absence of civic virtue that he really doesn't even pretend he's in it for anything other than his own self-aggrandizement that actually underpins Trump's alternative vision of the presidency, which is, you know, a departure in very, very serious ways from the uh, expectations and norms of the traditional presidency. And and those, are, of course, are the two lines of questions that I would like to ask you. First, to explain to some degree what we mean by this concept of civic virtue. Um, and you also talk about civic mythology um, that's particularly connected to the presidency because of the position that it holds within not only our understanding of the governmental system, but also because we see the president all the time. Um, but I also then wanted to follow up with regard to the alternative vision of the presidency. But first, can we talk a little bit about civic virtue? Sure. So civic virtue, you know, is one of these gauzy concepts and it's deeply connected to the oath, right? So the, the idea is that in a republic, um, where, you do not have a right to rule inherited because of your uh, position within a certain family, uh, the, and you are selecting people to rule in various capacities based on their merit and what binds them to the office to the people to the country is actually the oath that they take right what holds them to that oath is a certain sense of public spiritedness a certain sense of civic virtue a certain sense that you will do your best on behalf of the office that you hold 
And we are not an honor culture these days. And so we don't, we, we get kind of allergic to terms like civic virtue. But then you have somebody like Trump who comes around who really reminds you how much our system actually does depend on it, right? And that there is a sense in which a very large content of the system simply doesn't work if you don't believe that the person who is uh, slated to do a particular job has any regard for reverence for uh, uh, that role at all. The other dimension is that in the absence of some belief that the office holder has a certain uh, certain public virtuous core, other actors will not defer to that office. And there are all of these places in our laws and customs in which we presume that when the president does X, he's doing X in good faith. Um, and the whole system relies on a certain set of assumptions like that, that there's a basic uh, uh, expectation of uh, a presumption of regularity in the conduct of government that we rely on every day. And that is a, a reliance on the fact that the people in question are trying their best to do their jobs in good faith. When you lose that presumption, a whole lot of aspects of the system start uh, start failing. Now, when we say civic virtue, what we don't mean is that these people are necessarily moral exemplars. We're not talking about, you know, that they're necessarily virtuous in their private lives. We're not saying that they may not be, uh, you know, flawed human beings in all the ways in which flawed people can be flawed. What we are saying is that when they take that oath, uh, that weighs on them in some sense, and they are trying in some good faith to do their best in the, in the position. So the the civic part is is essentially the underlining of the the idea here that the individual who takes the oath, be it the the president or people who work for the federal government or people in our armed services, as you note in in the book, all have to take oaths, um, and they're taking those oaths because they are going to do what they say they're going to do in terms of their job or commitment to the military and protecting the United States. So it's a civic engagement um, that is underlining the sort of virtue that is, as you say, not necessarily about being morally virtuous. Correct. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, um, the idea is to, you know, that there are, there are these things that you cannot force somebody to do, right? But what you can force is you can make them go through a ritual of promising to do it in a fashion that if they are capable of shame, will in failure to do those things or endeavor to do those things induce shame. And that is the role that the oath plays in harnessing a sense of civic virtue and public, public morality, um, public ethics to c- 
compel people to actually endeavor to do their best in their functions. So the title of the book is The Unmaking of the Presidency. Um, And, you know, you sort of lead into this discussion of the Trump presidency that is essentially unmaking so many aspects of what we understand the presidency to be and to do within our constitutional system. And, and, and that's to some degree, I guess, where you were talking also about the alternative version and vision of the presidency um, that may start to be disconnected or is in some ways possibly disconnected from aspects of the Hamiltonian sort of plan. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of where some of the, the key elements of this unmaking are as demonstrated by the Trump presidency? Sure. So people don't like it when Susan and I say that Donald Trump has a vision of the presidency because he's so inarticulate and so untheoretical that it almost seems to give him too much credit to describe him as as reflecting a vision of the office. And yet I think when somebody systematically violates so many of the normative expectations of an office, and does it consistently and over a protracted period of time. Whether that person knows it or not, he is putting a vision, an alternative vision of the office on the table. And that is, our, in our view, what Trump is doing. So what is that alternative vision? Uh, number one, uh, it is a vision that uh, systematically conflates the person of the president with the office of the presidency. So whereas in the traditional presidency, those are actually distinct things, right? George Washington is acting as president. He is the president, but he is not the presidency. Um, when Donald Trump speaks, uh, you actually don't know if that is Donald Trump the man or Donald Trump the president or the institutional presidency when he tweets an insult at somebody uh you know is that is that the presidency or is that Donald Trump the dyspeptic human being talking um the in vis- this is a vision in which the personality of the individual largely subsumes or becomes entirely entangled with the uh, institutional role of the office. Their interests, financial and personal, become intertwined with policy interests. Uh, and you saw an example of that with Ukraine, that, that Donald Trump was actually incapable of distinguishing between his personal interests in an investigation of a political opponent and the institutional positions of the United States vis-a-vis a potential law enforcement partner in a foreign country. Um, it's a um, vision in which the vanity played elements of the office, the giving speeches, the um, uh, the uh, making announcements and signing things really subsumes uh, what 
the traditional presidency has valued, which is the actual management functions of the office, which is, after all, at the end of the day, uh, the apex of a pyramid that is the entire U.S. federal government and traditionally runs the federal government. And then finally, uh, it's a vision in which the uh, the oath um, becomes really an unimportant uh, element in the sense that the public service dimensions of the office uh, really are sublimated to the aspects of the office that are vehicles for personal expression. And so the what we call it is the, the expressive presidency kind of subsumes all these other aspects that the traditional presidency has valued. And the expressive presidency, as you sort of talk about throughout the book, is one that is often in potentially in tension with the executive branch. Um, and, and you go through a lot of different examples throughout the book in terms of talking about how the presidency and the person occupying it in Donald Trump are not always or often sort of managing the office, instead often being managed by it. Um, can you talk a little bit about that sort of tension? Yeah. So, you know, if you think about the traditional presidency, the president does not personally administer every agency, but he does name the person who runs the agencies, and those people are responsible to him. And so we understand the president as uh, running the entire government, or at least being in charge of the entire government. Uh, in the Trump administration, and and the political scientist Daniel Dresner has been the real cataloger of this, the president ceases to be the sort of head of the executive branch and becomes kind of the mascot of the executive branch. And, you know, for those of you who have not followed the toddler-in-chief thread on, on, on Twitter that Dresner has put together, I, I really think it is a powerful... Uh, um, it, it's powerful because it is so long. And, you know, at the very beginning of the Trump presidency, Dresner started noticing that there were all these news stories where people associated with Trump would talk about managing him roughly the way you would talk about managing a toddler. And he would screenshot these and add them to the thread with an annotation that was always said, I'll believe Trump is growing into the presidency when his staff starts talking about him like a toddler. And if you think about this, this is exactly the way the presidency is not supposed to work, which is what makes it both amusing and uh, alarming that the president is actually being managed by the people whom he is supposed to manage. And that is a reflection of the fact that Trump, in fact, does not value the same things in the presidency that the traditional presidency has. The traditional presidency is interested in policy outcomes, is interested in effectuating um, policy outcomes in management, in getting things done through government. Trump is interested in self-expression. He's interested in uh, being a 
you know, flamboyant and constant presence in the public uh, uh, eye. And those two interests are a both time consuming and they are not always consistent with one another. And so what Trump has done is uh, allowed the management functions of the executive to migrate downward, allowed himself to be a kind of ward of the executive branch, albeit a very difficult one who occasionally fires people, but also at the same time to grab the spotlight and occupy it all the time. And that is where we see the sort of traditional presidency's functions being sublimated to those of the expressive presidency. And and the the policy outcomes that you note that it's it's very tangled. You go through a whole bunch of different examples in the book about how you know, generally speaking, there's a process, there are policy processes in all kinds of areas, um, and that Trump has come in and essentially disrupted them, um, in part by, you know, sort of offering tweets as opposed to a policy process. And I know that Trump himself has said, you know, I'm coming to disrupt and that's what I'm doing, um, and so is this disruptive nature one that you know, the presidency can handle? Or is this something that is, as in the title of the book, the unmaking of the presidency itself? So I don't think we know the answer to that question yet. Um, On the one hand, uh, I don't think that this, that this situation is sustainable in the sense that um you know running government is hard and someone has to do it and if the president isn't going to do it we need to figure out some alternative set of arrangements in which the traditional management functions of the presidency actually don't get ignored and so one possibility is that you know if trump is politically successful that and other politicians who aspire to the presidency also value these aspects of the expressive presidency over the functions of the traditional presidency, that we will have to evolve political structures that can do, make decisions, do the sort of public management that we've traditionally expected presidents to do. One possibility that we sort of flirt with in the book is maybe that is an aggrandized uh, vision of the chief of staff role, you know, that you kind of let that stuff migrate down from the president so that the president is then freer to basically be a a showman. Um, But the other possibility, of course, is that the presidency will regard this as an aberrational period because it doesn't work for Trump. And, you know, in which case you could imagine things really snapping back and the next presidency being much more traditional. I think in order to start answering that question, you have to answer the preceding question, which is, is Trump going to be a successful disruptor or is he disruptive the way a two-year-old is disruptive until somebody comes along and scoops him out and gives it, scoops him up and kind of gives him a timeout. And then we kind of go back to normal functioning. And so that comes with the election in 2020? As an initial matter. 
Okay. Um, so I, I did want to ask you in, in context of this understanding of disruption, uh, there's recent article in the New York Times about the purging that has gone on over the past couple of days of people who aren't loyal in, in the administration and in the executive branch. But in that context, there's also a lot of discussion about who is populating the executive branch? Um, and this goes to, I think, your analysis with regard to whether this is successful or not. Trump has a lot of openings still um, in the brand, in the executive branch, and he also has a lot of acting people. Um, and I'm wondering how the presidency itself is tolerating these kind of switches in our understanding of who should be in those offices and how they're supposed to be confirmed by the Senate and so forth. It's tolerating it badly is the short answer. Um, uh, You know, the, again, this goes back to the earlier point, somebody has to run the executive branch. Um, It's too big an organization or a set of interlocking organizations for the answer to who run it, who runs it, be nobody over a long period of time. Um, and there are many ways that the president runs the executive branch, but the most important of them is by staffing it. And so when the president doesn't staff it and leaves large numbers of jobs vacant, one of the things that happens is that there aren't actually people to make decisions. And so policy kind of stagnates as a result. Um, There's a lot of that happening right now. There is also the fact that when he does populate these agencies, he's often doing it, uh, as you point out, not by sending people through Senate confirmation, but by appointing acting officials who can then be removed and replaced very easily. And that's what you saw with the Office of the Director of National Intelligence last week. Um, There is no good solution to this problem other than uh, for the president to stop doing this and for Congress to raise a lot of noise about it so that he feels political pressure to do it. But it's a terrible way to run the executive branch. Again, it reflects the fact that Trump actually doesn't care that much about the part of governing that actually involves, you know, governing, governing. Um, and and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the expressive presidency. Um, and in part of the discussion is that, you know, Trump is very baldly or blatantly doing a lot of things that he says he promised to do. Um, and he's doing it in a Trump way as opposed to the traditional way. Um, and there's a lot of uh, discussion on Twitter that he's saying the quiet parts out loud. Um, but if we think about sort of the the teachings that somebody like Machiavelli talks about with regard to executives, there is something about sort of you're supposed to, you know, twist yourself or move yourself to fit the people. And Trump is sort of saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, And so I'm wondering if this is a sort of a reimagining on some level. And I think that's where your book is also talking about the unmaking 
of how we expect our leaders in executive positions or other positions as well to speak to us and lead us. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So first of all, I mean, I've said a lot of critical things about the president, but I, and the president lies a great deal. But there is a sense in which he is remarkably honest, and I think we should acknowledge it, which is, you know, he doesn't really pretend to be anything other than what he is. Richard Nixon was a villain who posed as a very virtuous person. And therefore, when the villainy emerged, it was quite shocking, right? When people heard the way he talked on the Watergate tapes, his support uh, to a large extent dried up. And the Trump is very different than that. He doesn't actually pretend to be uh, anything other than a rogue. He is, his persona is that I'm a I'm a, you know, a, a, a nasty alley cat, but I'm fighting for you, right? And his, um, and he, he really, therefore, as people learn bad things about him, it doesn't actually disrupt their understanding of him particularly. And so he doesn't pay a price for it. Uh, his speech is a big part of that. You know, he, and what people call reading the quiet parts out loud is actually a form of honesty. You know, he is uh, more than capable of lying all the time, but about his, uh, what he's doing and what he's thinking, he's actually remarkably honest about it. You know, I'm going to, I'm thinking about pardoning Paul Manafort. He'll just say it out loud. He doesn't leave you wondering about it, right? Um, I hate Bob Mueller and the investigation that they're running. And I think they're all out to get me. And I, you know, I'm thinking about pardoning all the criminals that they've indicted. Uh, You know, he doesn't hide that. There's a sense in which, despite all the lies, people actually feel that he is honest. And if you look at his poll data among his supporters, they trust him to tell the truth more than the news. Uh, They trust him more than other people, even though he is objectively much less truthful. And I think there's a sense in which uh, they are picking up on uh, some of the underlying structural sort of lack of hypocrisy in the way he presents himself. And I think that is real. I think they're not being deluded about that. I think it's a, it's a genuine feature of his self-presentation. And, and and at the same time, though, the the teachings that come to us from political theorists like Machiavelli and to a degree Hamilton is that, you know, you want to have somebody who is, is someone you can say to your children, you should emulate the president. Um, and that seems complicated in the Trump presidency. Yes, I think Trump has definitely defied that that rule. Right. He is perfectly comfortable with people saying, uh, you know, no, you should not emulate the presidency, but he's the, uh, he's the, he, he's the flawed vessel through which our goals will be accomplished and we will support him on that basis. 
And so one of the the questions I also wanted to ask you in terms of unmaking the presidency, because it is about the executive branch, but it's also about understanding the executive branch in a constitutional context. And you spend a lot of time talking about the sort of Hamiltonian perspective with regard to the office itself. And the stability is one of the aspects that both Hamilton and Madison sort of wanted installed in a lot of aspects of the government um, that they were creating. Uh, And so Trump himself is kind of at odds with the sort of compulsion towards stability, particularly as seen in the executive office. Can you talk a little bit about how that is also a disconcerting situation for most Americans? Yeah, I hesitate to speak for most Americans, but look, let's let's talk about it from the point of view of stability within the executive branch. Um, The executive branch developed certain ways of doing things, not for ideological reasons or not because they're, uh, you know, not because there's any sort of great theory behind it, but because it worked better, right? So constitutionally and structurally, the executive branch is is a person and everything else is stuff that works for that person. Um, But over time, what, as the executive branch grew, what we learned was that it is useful not to think of the executive branch that way for certain purposes, because, you know, the different arms of the government might not know what one another are doing. They might disagree with one another. They might have different, but both perfectly reasonable equities, and they may have just different expertise and perspective. And so you needed some mechanisms to coordinate all of that stuff. And to make sure that the president wasn't handling too many matters on his own and was, when he had to make a decision, making the best possible informed decision. And this is how this idea of executive branch process, interagency processes grew up. And it really is a feature of just wanting to optimize presidential decision making. Now, all of that is exactly the way we expect presidents to work, irrespective of their party, irrespective of their ideology. And it's also almost, not entirely, but almost entirely voluntary. That is, if the president wants to behave like his own guy who just kind of wings it and makes decisions on his own, he's actually allowed to do that. Now, it's totally destabilizing. And it's very alarming to people who have grown up with an idea that the presidency will be organized or will be, you know, will make decisions in a semi-structured way or will consider lots of different government interests before doing something. But it is totally within the president's power to behave that way. And I think one of the things that was so jarring to so many people about the first few weeks of the Trump administration was that he stripped away a lot of those layers of onion that had grown up around the core of what the presidency really is, which is, again, if he wants it to be 
one guy making decisions and making big decisions, not necessarily with the full information available and and the analytic capacity of all of his agencies at his disposal. So one of my my sort of observations as I as a student of the American presidency have been watching the Trump presidency and the way that he's staffed the the sort of executive office of the president is that he's essentially continuing to try to run the American government as if it were a family business. How does that fit into the general sort of context of unmaking the presidency? Right. So again, uh when when you say let's pick apart what you just said he's running it running the federal government which is a giant interlocking set of immense bureaucracies as though it were a family business which is to say something that you the individual can do with whatever you want um and again that's exactly the same point that i just made before stated more briefly and more elegantly, you know, that you've removed all these layers and layers and layers of process and uh, processes that were put in place over time to improve presidential decision-making and improve information flow in order to just kind of do what you want. And yeah, he does have the power to do that. query whether it is the mode of decision-making that optimizes the quality of decisions over time. So now that you've discussed the unmaking of the presidency, and we have talked to some degree about the potential to have it remade in one form or continue in the direction of an unmaking, what is it that you might be working on next, Ben? Well... That's an interesting question. I have made a decision, at least for the time being, that I'm going to spend this next year um, not trying to write another book, um, but actually just trying to run Lawfare uh, in a period in which I suspect we will have a lot of uh, turmoil in this area. We, We haven't talked about the impeachment, but the impeachment process began just as we were finishing this book. And so I'm just kind of surfacing from the, uh, from the combination of the House processes and then the, the Senate impeachment trial. And we seem to have a little bit of a crisis in the law enforcement world right now and a little bit of a crisis in the intelligence world. And so for right now, um, I'm trying to keep my hands around that material and not take on the next uh, book project just yet. But that'll last until uh, until I uh, maybe, maybe in an act of foolishness dive in again, because it always does seem to happen. Well, I appreciate you coming on the New Books and Political Science podcast to talk to me about Unmaking the Presidency. Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office. And um, I appreciate the conversation today and learning about uh, the perspective of how the presidency has been unmade. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot.